Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel 14. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison, or governor, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer weren't there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone with them into camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Thanks, Cynthia. Well, good morning. It's good to have you here. As many of you know... Last March, I was playing basketball with uh, a lot of much younger men and (laughs) hurt my knee. Well, I thought, okay, uh, I can deal with this. I think if I just ice it, take care of it, and keep exercising as much as I can, I can can handle this. I can deal with this. So I worked at it, and I worked at it, and kept exercising, and it didn't get better. Until finally, I realized... I could not deal with this. I didn't have the resources to deal with it. So after five months of my own efforts, I finally went to the doctor and I had to submit to his diagnosis, which was, you have a torn ACL, your meniscus is a mess, you need surgery. So at that point I had a choice, either to ignore his advice or, again, submit to him, lay on the table, go under the knife and let him do surgery on me. It's hard for us to do, some of us, perhaps all of us, to give up control and to admit that we can't handle life. But I think the Christian life is often like that. In fact, I think it's God's plan. We think we can handle life ourselves, so we try, we give it our best. You know, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we make our best effort, and yet God continually puts us in situations that we can't handle, where we're in too deep for us, where we're over our heads, where we come to the end of our own resources, and He does that because He loves us. He does that because He wants us to learn to trust Him. He's testing us. 
He's testing us to see if we will turn to him in faith and learn to depend on him to be our warrior. He wants to be our warrior. He wants to fight our battles for us. But so often we get in the way. But he's committed to helping us learn to depend on him as our warrior. Why? Well, for one, he knows he created us for that. We're designed. We are most human. We are most what what we were created to be when we are learning to depend on him as our warrior. Also, he knows that only he has the power to deal with sin and death and struggle and the world and the flesh and all the things that we do battle with in this life. And ultimately, he knows that's the only way that he will get the glory that he deserves. He needs to be honored and thanked by us. Well, our text today, we see that God fights the battle for Israel. He wins an amazing victory. Reminds us that only God can rescue, only God can save. He is mighty to save, as we just sang. But the question for us that I think this text addresses is, what gets in the way of us really trusting him as our warrior? And how can we learn to trust him as our warrior more? So pray with me, and then let's look together at this passage. Lord, thank you that you are our warrior. You are mighty to save. Lord, from this passage, open our eyes by the power of your Spirit so we might see you as our warrior more clearly and learn to trust you more fully as the one who wants to fight our battles for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Cynthia just read, the passage begins in verse 15. Let me set the context for you. Remember, we're here in 1 Samuel. And the Philistines have their mighty army, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horse riders, and all kinds of infantry, and they're at Michmash. So let me show you a map, and we'll kind of set the context for you again. Just so you understand, this is north, this direction, south, east, west. This is the top of the Dead Sea. This is the Jordan River. This is an actual satellite photo. To orient you, this is Jerusalem here. So this right here is the hill of Michmash. That's where the Philistine army is. Thousands and thousands, they've gathered. They are there to attack and fight against Israel. Most of Israel has run away and hidden and run across the Jordan and escaped. So at this point, right over here across the canyon, are Saul and Jonathan and 600 men against the thousands and thousands of the Philistines. And of course, the Philistines are far superior in numbers and in weapons. They have swords and spears and shields. And it says the only ones who even had swords in Israel were Saul and Jonathan. All the other men were fighting with farm implements, hoes and plowshares, mattocks, the like. (laughs) These are not very favorable odds, are they? We saw last week how Jonathan and his armor bearer crawled across this canyon, down and up. It was a steep climb. It was difficult. It It was exhausting. And attacked an outpost 
of the Philistine elite, the special forces, their guard, and they killed 20 right there. It was an amazing battle that they were so exhausted and yet they killed these 20 of the Philistines. But that's not so great a battle against thousands and thousands, is it? The Israelites are still in incredible trouble. They are against an enemy far too bigger than them. They are lost unless God intervenes. And he does. He does. Verse 15, it says, There was a trembling in the camp and the field and among all the people, even the governor or garrison, I think governor's better translation, and the raiders, the elite troops, trembled. And the earth quaked, so it became a great trembling. So God steps in. He says those that were in the main camp of the Philistines, those that were spread out in the field that had gone on raiding parties, all the Philistines, God sent among them a panic. They were terrified. They began to shake. And then, in addition to that, God sends an earthquake. (laughs) I love the way God has taken away the courage and sent a panic into the entire huge Philistine army. It's a reminder to us that God can change the hearts of even unbelievers and use them for His purposes. God can control the hearts of even godless men and women to accomplish His purposes. Sometimes we get afraid of the unbelievers around us. Somehow we forget that God is God. He's a warrior. He can control them. You may have a relative, a boss, a co-worker, a child, someone in your life who rejects God. Now, God in His grace and in His love won't force them to believe. He lets them make that choice. He encourages them towards that, but He won't force them to believe in Him. But... He can still use them to accomplish whatever purposes he wants to accomplish. Remember Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, who it says was hardened. He hardened his own heart against Moses when he came and asked, let my people go. So he did plagues, brought plagues on him. And then it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart from then on. God decided I would make this a victory and do ten plagues and I will make sure everyone knows I am the Redeemer here. God swayed Pharaoh's heart for his own purposes. He does that. He did that for Daniel. In the book of Daniel, chapter 1, we see that Daniel decided I won't eat the food that everyone else is. I, I won't participate in ungodliness. And it says, very clearly that God changed the heart of the commander and gave Daniel favor in his eyes. God can sway anyone, folks, and use them for his purposes. And he sways the heart of the Philistines here, terrifies them to accomplish his great victory. I have a friend who worked for a big company and he was in one group and every once in a while he had to work with this boss in this other group that was very, very difficult. And all he could think was, I'm so glad I'm not on his, in his group. Guess what? 
He got transferred. So he and I prayed about it and prayed that he would learn to be a godly man and that he would trust God to be his warrior in that situation. God changed the heart of that boss. And they ended up working well together for a long period of time. God can change anything. God is our warrior. He can fight and we can trust him to do that. And I love how he sends an earthquake just to encourage it. He's already changed the Philistine's heart. (laughs) But he sends an earthquake and shakes the whole ground in the whole area to affirm that this battle is a holy war. This is God's battle. God is at work here. And therefore the Israelites can trust him. He's fighting for his people in a miraculous way. So the question becomes not, will God show up and fight? That's not the question. He is fighting, folks, in your situation. That's not the question, is God fighting? The question is, will I have eyes to see what God's doing? Will I get on board with the battle God is fighting? That is the ultimate question, because God's doing his thing. But are we joining in his battle Or are we demanding that he join ours? That's the tension of faith, isn't it? We we think God should do certain things, and so we pray and we ask God to change our circumstances. And sometimes, and I think we've maybe all felt this way, we think, oh yeah, God's a warrior, but he doesn't fight for me. I've prayed and asked God to work, and he may fight for other people, but he doesn't fight for me. Why is that? Why do we struggle with that? I think it's because, you see, God's fighting, but the question is, are we looking for him to fight in the way and in the time that we want him to fight in? Or are we joining in the battle that he is already fighting? Are we looking for him to change our circumstances? Or... Have we joined in the battle that God's fighting and he's made very clear in Scripture that his ultimate goal is to change us into Christ-likeness? Like that verse, many of us know, verse 28 of Romans, for God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we take that verse and we say, great, but God, how come you're not working good the way I think you should? Well, we forget the next verse, verse 29. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. You see, God is not that concerned about our circumstances, ultimately. He does care, obviously. But his battle, what he's fighting, what he wants to accomplish in our lives, is that we might be more like Jesus. That's the good. He's purposed in our lives. And so when we join in that battle, and that's what we pray for, and that's what we seek, and that's what we're after, then circumstances take care of themselves. God accomplishes his purposes. But we have a hard time trusting God in the midst of it. And the next few verses, we see the barriers to trust as we look at the life of Saul, King Saul. Verse 17. 16, let's start there. Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they were he- went here and there. Let me again just show you the map just to show the context here, what's happening. 
So again, the, the Philistines are all right up here. I'm trying to get it right here. Yes, right here. They're on this high point. It's about 3,000 feet up in the mountains. And it says, Saul's watchmen looked and they began to melt away like a popsicle on a hot sunny day. They began to melt down this way towards the seacoast, which is all the way down here at the Mediterranean. They're melting down these different canyons. They're running away. They're fleeing. They're afraid. They're terrified. So Saul sees that. This is an opportunity as he gets a report from his watchmen to join in with what God's doing. God's working. God's moving. And notice verse 17. How does Saul respond? Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had been numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. What a strange response, isn't it? I mean, here the battle's being won by God. Saul has his men. He can join in. And what does he do? He stops and he takes time to count his 600 men and to figure out who's not there. Why would Saul do this? Why would he want to know? Why wouldn't he just say, look what God's doing? I think it's because his perspective is, who did this without my consent? I'm the king. I'm in charge. Who started this battle? You see, what's most important to Saul is appearing to be in control. To have an explanation for what's going on. It's his own pride that's at stake here. He's not so concerned about getting on board with God and what he's doing. He wants to appear to the people that he's in charge and he wants to know who stepped out without his permission. I think a lot of all of us struggle with this, our flesh. We want an explanation for what's going on. We want to appear to be in control. We want to control life because when life feels out of control, we feel insecure. We feel unsafe. We feel afraid. We hate feeling out of control. But faith, faith is relinquishing control saying, God, you are my warrior. I trust you to fight. And I may not have an explanation. I may not know all the whys of what's going on in my life, but I'm going to have eyes to see what you're doing and I will join in with what you are accomplishing in my life. That is the heart of faith. But Saul's a control freak. (laughs) He wants to stay in charge. Of course, I'm sure none of you have ever been called control freaks. But the verse emphasizes, I think, really clearly that Saul is not in control, is he? He doesn't even know his son Jonathan is gone, the heir to the throne. It it emphasizes this division between him and his own son, Jonathan, who is a man of faith. It reinforces the sense that he is losing his authority, not only in his family, but he's losing the authority over all of Israel. And then we see this amazing scene in verse 18 and 19. It says, Saul said to Ahijah, 
bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now again, think for a minute. Um, Is it good that Saul's calling the priest here? Well, it may be. It may be. He calls for the ark. Of course, as you remember earlier in 1 Samuel, when they took the ark into battle, what happened? (laughs) It got taken by the Philistines, and it was terrible. But here they've got it again. But Saul calls for the priest and the ark, apparently to seek God, at least to appear to the people to be seeking God, which actually, according to the law, was the right thing to do. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the people are commanded when they go into war to seek God, to listen to the priest. And let me read it for you. Chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, verse 1 through 4. When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, As I read this, think about your own life and the battles you face that can be overwhelming. Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you're approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. So the priest is to stand and give this rousing speech to encourage them to trust God that no matter how big the enemy appears, God is going to win. Saul may have known that. So it seems to be a good thing that he calls the priest forward and brings the ark and they're getting ready to go into battle. But notice this scene. It's amazing. They're gathered around. They're preparing to hear from the priest. And then Saul keeps getting distracted because he hears this huge Philistine army melting down through the canyons, running away, throwing their equipment, leaving chariots and their horses. And he can hear it from a few miles away. And he's distracted and he can't listen to the priest. And finally he says, "Uh, why don't you go work on the... The ark, go shine it up or something. You know, I mean, essentially, that's what he's saying. He says, withdraw your hand. Take a hike. You know, I've got more important things to do right now. (laughs) What does this reveal about Saul? Well, I think it reveals something that's common to a lot of us, and that is that for him, religion is simply a tool. God is simply a tool, a tool to somehow make us appear spiritual, you know, so the people would think, oh, he's seeking God, so God's in this with him, or, or maybe God's convenient, and I'll, as long as he's convenient, I'll give time to him. But, boy, when the battle's raging, uh, I'll do the urgent things instead of put God first. We struggle with that, don't we? When the rubber meets the road, the urgent things in life become first and become more important than what God is doing. This is convicting for us, isn't it? It's a question for us to ask ourselves, do we 
Do we really think that what God's doing is most important and we want to join with that? Or deep down, do we really think what we're doing is most important and we want to somehow figure out how to get God to join us, to get on board with our plans? That's the contrast between faith or self-dependence, control, like Saul shows us. Well, in verse 20, Saul ignores the priest and joins the battle. They step out. Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. Just note that Saul has now direct confirmation. He'd had watchmen come, say the people were running away, the Philistines. But now he hears it, so he goes, oh, okay, now that I've got proof that they're running away, now I'll join the battle. That's a real contrast to Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan joined the battle even before God started doing anything. He trusted God to fight for him, to fight that battle. And I think part of the problem for Saul is that he has a limited view. He only trusts in what he can see or hear rather than believing what God says. I like the way Ray Stedman describes it. He says, limited views mean limited lives. That is, if your view of life is so narrow and crabbed, so withered and shrunken, as to include nothing but what you can see and feel and taste and smell and hear and reason, then your life is going to be horribly deprived and poverty-stricken. Lift up your eyes and look beyond the visible to the realities of God. Live in the full dimensions of life as God intended life to be. Life can never be explained entirely in terms of the natural. We are left impoverished and despairing if all we have to depend on is our natural resources. God's cry to us is this. No longer be unbelieving, but believe and have faith that I am at work. So what are the barriers to trust that we've seen in King Saul? Well, control, having to stay in control. Pride, it says, I want to look good to others. Personal status, I'm the king. Being controlled by what you see around you rather than by what God says and by what you see in the scriptures. Those are the things that make it hard for us to really live as God, with God as our warrior. But what I love about the end of this passage now is that despite Saul's lack of faith, God still fights. He's a gracious warrior that fights for us even when we struggle, even when we don't trust him very well. Isn't that amazing? He's that kind of warrior, that kind of God, so we can always trust him. I mean, just... Let's walk through these last few verses. The end of chapter, verse 20, it says, Behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. So not only has God called them, caused them to have a great panic, and they're melting away, and he has an earthquake, now he causes the Philistines to begin killing each other. As they're stampeding down these canyons, and smoke, dust is flying, and they're leaving things, and they're confused, They see somebody coming out and they start fighting him and they kill one another not realizing what they're doing. That's a panic sent by God. God intervening. Verse 21. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who
who went up with them all around in the camp, even when they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul, and even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. What he's describing here is there were some of the Hebrews, kind of the rabble, who, as they saw this battle coming, and this huge Philistine army, they said, you know what? If we stick with the Israelites, we're going to get wiped out. So let's join with the Philistines. So they betrayed their own people and went over to help the Philistines and most likely were made slaves, taking care of the animals, carrying water, cooking, whatever, in the Philistine camp. But what it says is even those who were so afraid, God moved in their hearts, raised them up, and they began fighting the Philistines. They joined the Israelites in the battle. Then verse 22 says, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. Now, if you recall, back in chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, it says, when the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance, they came up and camped at Michmash. And verse 6, When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. These people were terrified. But in verse 22 it says, But God even inspired them, brought them out of their caves, out of in their terror, and they joined the battle. They grabbed their hoes, their mattocks, plowshares, whatever they had, and they joined the battle chasing the Philistines who were running away. All this is to emphasize that God is in control. God is the warrior. God is the one who is fighting. He is winning the victory. He turns around hearts. He changes people. And he does exactly what Jonathan said back earlier in the chapter, verse 6. God is not hindered to save by many or by few. He can accomplish it any way he wants. He can change hearts. He is the one who wins the victory. And then verse 23 says, So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. That phrase, the Lord delivered Israel on that day, only occurs one other time throughout the entire Old Testament. It occurs back in Exodus chapter 14 when God led the people of Israel across the Red Sea and the entire army of Pharaoh was drowned as the Red Sea came back over them. And in chapter 14, verse 30, it says this of Exodus, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, same phrase, from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Because the people saw God as their warrior, they saw what he had done. They had eyes to see. Then it says that they believed, feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. 
So as we look at this passage, I think that's encouragement to you and to me. Let's remember God is a warrior and he fights for us. So let's fear him. Let's believe in him. Will we join him in the battle? Or will we try to manipulate him to join our battle (laughs) that we want him to fight for us? Well, what about us today? Israel could always look back at the great exodus of how God had saved them and at battles like this, how God had taken care of them. But we live in the New Testament age. How is God our warrior today? Well, God rescued us on the cross. He sent Jesus to die for us on the cross. He defeated sin and death once for all. And we can always look to that and know that God is our warrior and he loves us and is fighting on our behalf. Always fighting on our behalf, whether we have eyes to see it or not. And it says, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he stood before his disciples, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Jesus is encouraging them and us. He has all authority. There is no power next to his. He has all authority, all power. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been given the name above every name that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is Lord right now. Obama's not Lord. (laughs) Putin is not Lord. Ahmadinejad is not Lord. No human is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's building his kingdom. He's in control. He upholds all things by his powerful word. And he's bringing in his kingdom and someday he'll return to establish it completely forever. We can trust Jesus as our divine warrior. And he's a gracious warrior who is willing to fight for us even when we don't trust him very well. He's still fighting to accomplish his purposes. So the question really for us as we finish up this study is, will we trust God to do what's best? Will we believe that our God saves? Will we get on board with him and trust him Or will we continue to try to control and try to make life work and try to get God to somehow be on board with what we think he should do? That's the tension of faith, isn't it? But let's remember this passage in that God is our gracious warrior. Let's pray. Lord, what an encouragement to trust you. Give us eyes to see how you are working even when it's hard for us to see sometimes. And give us hearts to trust you as our divine warrior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.